so glad you're here with us today, especially if this is your first time joining us. Um, thrilled you're here and hope that this morning you've gained a sense of the love and the embrace of this community because it truly is an amazing, amazing group of people to be a part of. But we're, we're in a series called Re, and what we've been doing is reimagining, reframing, and reclaiming the language of faith. Some of these, this, this Christian language, the vocabulary of the Christian tradition, which has gotten weighed down with all sorts of extra baggage. And if we strip some of it away, uh, what we discover is there's actually something real there, something beautiful and life-giving. And we talked about that last week with the word repent, right? Which is a word that often has tons of baggage and has been used to demean and dehumanize and judge. And the reality is that repentance is about this changing of our minds, this rethinking and re reforming our opinions and actually moving forward as a human being, letting go of some things that need to be let go of and, and thinking about them differently and moving forward. Today, I want to talk about another loaded term. Uh, I want to talk about the word faith. Now, often when we talk about faith, we tend to talk about it in the context of belief, right? So is, is that what we mean by the word faith? When somebody says, I have faith, are they saying, I believe some stuff? Uh, if that's true, everybody has faith, right? We all believe some stuff. But what specifically does faith mean? Is it about believing things that are hard to believe? Is it about being sort of a, uh, developing this kind of stubbornness in the face of data, in the face of science, in the face of medicine, in the face of experience? Is it sort of <clears throat> clinging to this bl blind belief that even if it's hard to believe, or especially if it's hard to believe, then it must be right? Is faith saying, I know what science says about the universe in 14 plus billion years, but I have faith. Or I, I know it seems really, really uh, improbable and illogical to think that a man can be swallowed by a fish and live there for three days and then be regurgitated out on a beach. Uh, but that's precisely why we have to believe that that is literally true. It's because that's what faith means. Um, I actually don't know about that. I actually don't think that's the truth. Is faith sort of the opposite of common sense? I mean, I've heard people say a lot over the years, if it makes sense, then it isn't faith, right? Like if, if you can understand it, then it probably isn't right, probably isn't true. We often use the word belief, faith synonymously with the word belief, and it pops up in the way we translate the Bible. Um, maybe probably the most well-known passage in the entire Bible, the most um, widely known verse a verse that people hang up on signs that back when we could go to ball games, they would hold up signs at sporting events and um, that popped up everywhere. It's John 3.16. It goes like this. For God so loved the world that God gave God's only son so that whoever believes in him, in the only son, in Jesus, may not perish but have eternal life. And you think, right there it is. What is faith? Believing in Jesus, which is an interesting, interesting way to use that word that language, right? Believe in. I can believe in a lot of things and they don't really change my life. We'll come back to that, right? So John 3, 16, whoever believes in him, believes. And then there's this, just another example from the book of Acts where these two preachers, Paul and Silas, have been put in jail and they are uh, having this moment where they, in the middle of the night, they're singing and they're praying and there's this earthquake and all the prison doors fly open and the jailer calls for the lights and rushes in. He fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. He brought them outside and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? They answered, believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. 
So he has this moment. He, he feels like he's going to, all the prisoners are going to escape. He's going to be held accountable for that, which is, is going to be bad. And then Paul and Silas are there. They don't leave. All the inmates are there. All the prisoners are there. And this man responds, and we could have a really fun discussion about what he means by saved here, because he doesn't mean going to heaven when you die. But he said, what do I have to do to be saved? What do I have to do to be liberated? Maybe like this, what do, what do I have to do to be liberated from this system? All right, what do I have to do? And they answered, believe. Believe. That's how we translate the word, believe. Is believe what John meant in John 3.16? Is believe what Paul means in Acts 16? Believe some doctrines and be saved? Are they saying that God is most concerned, more than anything else, God is concerned with our brains, with the content of what we believe to be true? Is that what God really cares about? If not, is faith something else? Is faith more than belief? Does it transcend belief? Or does it actually not have a lot to do with our doctrinal commitments at all? Maybe it, maybe it has something to do with something larger about who we are, who we're becoming, and how we're engaging in the world. And I, I think that's true. I think that's what faith is. Faith is a deeper and more rich experience than just the content of our belief system. Right? Faith isn't just being able to fill in the blanks I believe this about God. I believe this about Jesus. I believe this about the Bible. I believe this about, it's so much more than that. And so I want to share a little bit today about how I think faith works. And I want to look at faith. If faith isn't just about belief, what might it be? And I want to begin with this. I think faith, first and foremost, is a conviction. I think faith is a conviction. The word believe in those two passages we read, John 3.16 and Acts 16, the word believe is actually the word pistis in Greek. And it doesn't mean believe in the sense of I, I give intellectual assent to something being true. It actually means conviction of truth. You're convicted about something. It's the same word used in the famous heroes of faith, the famous faith chapter in Hebrews 11. Now faith, pistis, is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. You know, I came back to that verse a few years ago for the first time in, in a decade plus. I hadn't touched the passage in a very long time, and I came back to it, and I was reading the way it's translated. Faith is assurance. Like, if you're dealing with assurance, do you even have faith anymore? What does faith have to do with assurance? And I love the New Revised Standard Version. I, I use it for reading and study a lot. It's, it's one of my favorite versions. I think there are so many places where it gets things right that other translations get wrong. I, I feel like this is not one of those places, unfortunately. Assurance smacks of, like, certainty. When you hear the word assurance, you hear the, you're hearing, like, a guarantee. The truth is that certainty and guarantees in life do not exist. And maybe that is the biggest challenge we have, and one of the biggest challenges we have in Western Christianity is this, this connection to faith and assurance, that it, to certainty, to I have all the answers, and I'm certain about them, and I'm right, and I know I'm right. Like, that's just not a thing that's available to us. Certainty doesn't exist. By the way, doubt is not the opposite of faith. Certainty is. Actually, doubt requires a lot of faith. Doubt requires a trust that I am allowed to step back and poke and prod and pull things out and move them and rearrange them and repent and rethink, like that I am safe to do that. It is a safe universe for me to ask, is there a God? It is a safe universe for me to say, is everything that I was taught about the Bible actually true? 
See, the opposite of faith is certainty. And I think what we can have, we can't have certainty. I think what we can have is conviction. If you go and you, you look at Hebrews 11.1 1 and all sorts of different translations, uh, I, I, we're going to put a list of them up. Um, one of my other favorite translations is the Common English Bible. I use it almost every Sunday, but uh, I, I love it. But this is the way they translate this verse is not good. Faith is the reality of what we hope for, the proof of what we don't see. The NIV, now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we don't see. They just kind of flip the word assurance to the latter part of the sentence. Uh, King James, uh, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. I don't think any of those translations really get to the core of what's going on, except for there's one called the Young's Literal Translation, where they are, are translating it not for readability, not so it makes sense when you read it, but so you have like a word-for-word -word literal, this is what the Greek word was, and here's what we translate it. Listen to this translation. Faith is of things hoped for, a confidence of matters not seen, a conviction. Faith is of things hoped for, a confidence of matters not seen, a conviction. I think confidence and conviction actually capture what that text is saying in, in the, the best way, in the English language at least. There are no certainties. There are no guarantees. But there are convictions that shape how we live and move in the world. There are convictions that shape how we spend our time, how we spend our energy, how we spend our money. There are convictions that shape how we vote there are convictions that shape everything about us. There's con and, and conviction about what matters and a conviction about um, what you're willing to do to support what matters, right? Think about it like this. So many people I know have, that have not before have been very vocal in these days in our country that black lives matter. And people that I didn't know were, would be willing to protest have protested, right? When you think about that, you're thinking that there's something people are convicted about, that they are willing to risk hardship, they're willing to risk going to jail, they're, they're willing to risk something because they are convicted that now is the time for equity to be uh, brought about in this country for black, indigenous, and people of color. Like There's a conviction there. Think about pride. We're in pride month. Think about pride. Why, is, why do we celebrate pride? Why do we march? We march to celebrate because lots and lots of people over the years have felt such a conviction about equality and equity that they were willing to risk everything. And so we regularly must celebrate that conviction. Conviction shapes how we live. Well, often we think about when we think about beliefs, it just shapes. I mean, how many of us believe things that we don't actually follow through with? I mean, I just believe, I believe, I believe, I believe that eating certain foods are bad for me or that, that getting up in the morning and exercising before I start my day and do anything else is really, really wise and smart. And yet when the alarm clock goes off or when, the, <laughs> when somebody sets down a plate full of something I shouldn't have, what do I do? The belief is there, but there is no conviction most of the time. What if we had conviction, right? Conviction that something is actually worth giving our energy, effort, attention, and all for. I think faith is a conviction. One of the questions people ask sometimes, especially people who haven't made the journey, um, the unraveling journey uh, to, to progressive Christianity, they'll say, how do you know you're right? How do you know you're right about all this? What if, you're, what if you're wrong? How do you know you're right? And my response every time is, I have no idea if I'm right. But here's my conviction. I am convicted that whatever is real, whatever capital R reality is, it is far better, 
it is more generous and more inclusive than I can even begin to fathom. And I'm so convicted about that, that I'm willing to wager whatever I have to, to bring that hope and that faith to bear on the world. Right? So faith is conviction. I also think faith is about trust. It's about trust. To describe Christianity as a faith is to say that ultimately, Christ, being a Christian, what is it about? Somebody asked me on Facebook this week, if I don't believe this doctrine, can I still be a Christian? Yes. Yeah. It's a big, big, big tent. And there are lots and lots. There are 36,000 plus denominations who are all believing different things. For me, one of the things that makes me Christian is that I have a conviction and a trust about the way of Jesus. The way Jesus lived, the way Jesus invited us to live, the way Jesus engaged the world around him. And so when we talk about Christianity as a faith, we're not talking about a list of beliefs. We're not talking about holding up a creed and saying, I believe this, I believe that. We're not talking about reciting a creed every week that you affirm things that in, even deep in your bones, you know that you can't affirm them in the way you used to. Christianity has nothing to do with that, actually. That, that's, just, that's just something we've laid on top of it. Ultimately, Christianity is about the path of Jesus. And do I trust this path? The Christian tradition, the Christian faith is not a dogmatic, doubt-free system of belief. It's about seeking to follow Jesus. It's about an ethic that we embrace, a way of being in the world. One of my favorite passages, one of my favorite verses in the New Testament is when Jesus is talking to a father whose son needs healing. And Jesus says something like, everything's possible for those who believe. And listen to this father's response. I have faith. Help my lack of faith. Isn't that the most genuine authentic. I mean, how many times have we been in that mode where I'm trying to trust, but it's hard. So help me, right? This beautiful moment. And I think that is our experience. That is what it means to be on the Christian path. It means that we are compelled by the life, the teaching, the stories, the example of Jesus. And it compels us and impels us and calls us into the world to live and engage in a specific sort of way, with a specific sort of ethic and specific kind of values around loving neighbor and loving enemies and seeking to leave this world better and more transformed than the world we entered. And there are lots and lots of times when we say, I have faith, but help my lack of faith. But trust doesn't mean that there aren't questions. Trust doesn't mean that there aren't worries. Trust doesn't mean that there aren't doubts. Trust means that even with all of those things, I'm going to stay on the path. Even though I don't have the answers, even though there are lots of questions, even though there are lots of doubts, even though I'm not sure, because you can't be sure, this path gives me life and it, it helps me become the human I want to be in the world. And, and I think that is what faith is trust is all about. It's not about doubt-free, dogmatic, doctrinal system. It's about a way of being in the world. It's about trusting that if we stick to this, if we stay on the path, good things will happen in the world, that we will be a part of changing history. I also think faith is about faithfulness. And when I say faithfulness here, I'm not just meaning like, well, you do you, you, you live, you know, you show up to church every Sunday or what, you know, we think about faithfulness in that way. But what I mean is faith, I think faith is ultimately about practice, not holding beliefs, but actual practice. I, I love how the writer of the book of James frames this. He's writing about this dualism that exists between, um, in, in Christian circles in his day, between, uh, I have faith and I have deeds. So 
I have, a, I have some beliefs here that I hold on to, and then I'm doing some good things in the world. And notice what James says. In the same way, James chapter 2, in the same way, faith is dead when it doesn't result in faithful activity. Some might claim, you have faith and I have action, but how can I see your faith apart from your actions? Instead, I'll show you my faith by putting it into practice in faithful action. I, I love the way the Common English Bible translates that, translate that faithful activity and faithful actions. I mean, for a very long time, I, I struggled to do anything that was outside of my head. My entire system of faith was about what I could understand in my head, in my brain. Um, and often we take these rigid theological positions, we take these rigid theological positions that are all head and no heart. And I think what James is getting at is there's actually something beyond just the contents of your belief. There's this engaging in faithful action. It's doing the things you say you believe, right? Now, there are lots of people in the world who don't do this thing, the things they say they believe, and we're grateful because some of those beliefs are really, really, really um, worrisome. What about people who say they believe a specific? What, what, what about when we say we believe we should care for the poor and feed the hungry and take care of those who are marginal, take care of the oppressed? Like when we think about those, like it, it sometimes it just becomes do, like doctrinal categories, theological categories. And I think faith is about the way we engage. It's about faithful activity. In this sense, faith has very little to do with a set of doctrinal propositions. It's about faithful activity. And I think you can make the argument that it's actually when you see a human being being in the world and what they're doing in the world, you can tell more about the contents of their beliefs than you can if you sit down over coffee and say, what do you believe about X? And then they start telling you about it. You, you see, and, the, and the, Jesus talked about it this way, you'll know them by their fruit. You'll know them by their fruit. And I think this is one of the things that over the years, whenever I've gotten um, some flack or gotten some pushback or been called a false prophet, the thing that has given me com comfort is that, you know what, uh, pe people may say this and that about the contents of my beliefs, but what I hope is that if I live engaged in the world, then when they see the fruit of my life, that that'll speak louder than anything else. And sometimes that sometimes that's true, has been true, and sometimes I've made mistakes and have, have, haven't borne good fruit. The reality is that faithful activity is faith. And so when we go engage in the world, we are saying louder than any of, we, we could have a bullhorn screaming out our doctrinal positions and what we're actually doing in the world. We'll preach, we'll speak, we'll blast louder than anything we possibly say. And, and I want to give you one more, that, one more way faith, what faith has come to mean for me. And I think, Faith is about our vision. It's about the way we see the world, in the world. And I put it like this, faith is as imagination. Um, right now, in the world, and specifically in our country, we are facing a lot of challenges. And I just wrote down the first five or six that came to mind. We have white Christian supremacy, right? We have COVID-19 pandemic. We have growing income inequality and economics instability, we have people losing jobs, we have a, a, a problem with violence, especially gun violence, but violence as a whole in this country. And while all this is going on, we're facing the very real and rapid effects of climate change. And those, those are just a few, but and those aren't even the, the ones we all are dealing with on our own, our own personal challenges. That, that's just culturally, that's just our country, what we face. Each one of them, when you look at it, feels insurmountable by itself. 
right? I mean, how long have we been battling white Christian supremacy? How long have we been talking about income inequality? How long have we been trying to do, you know, talk about violence? How long have we been dealing with climate change? So one feels insurmountable. Can you imagine taking them all on? It, it feels, I'm sure, to you like it does to me. It feels like, is it possible? This is exhausting. How will we ever get the energy and the creativity and the imagination to do that? And I think that's what we need. We need imagination. That's what the prophets had. When the prophets talk about the world becoming a place of justice and peace, they weren't saying it was inevitable. They weren't saying someday it is an inevitability that we will live in a world of justice and peace, a world where the wolf will lie down with the lamb, a world where we will beat swords into plowshares, a, we, a world where justice will be experienced by everybody. That's, they're not saying that's inevitable. They're saying that that is an option. They're saying that this is the world we could create if we had the courage to imagine it and create it. They aren't saying it's going to be easy. They, they aren't saying that justice is just going to be done, so buckle up. What they're saying is we can experience justice. We can rid the world of injustice. We can experience true peace that is not predicated on beating someone, but is predicated in everybody having enough and people living in harmony and connection with each other. They're saying that that's possible, but it will always demand our participation. This is what Walter Brueggemann calls the prophetic imagination, right? And this is what prophets are, are, are called to do. Prophets don't predict the future. The future hasn't happened yet, so nobody knows what's going to happen in the future. Here's what prophets do. The prophets try to connect the dots for us. They, they try to connect the dots between where we are and the world we're dreaming of. And, and they try to say, look, if we do this and this and this and this, this is the outcome. If we, if we learn to make sure everybody has their needs met, if we give up the myth of redemptive violence, if we actually engage to make sure that people are being uh, given everything they need to thrive in the world, we will, head to, we will go to this place where swords will be beaten into plowshares because we don't need them anymore. Right? Or that we will move to this place where the wolf and the lamb will lie side by side, which is this way of saying that, that like this, this desire within nature and within us to, to, to be violent and to attack, that will now the vulnerable and the predator, the former predator, will be able to lie side by side. But it's not a guarantee. It's a vision of where we could go. That's what the Hebrew prophets did. That's what they spoke about. That's the, the way they connected the dots, and that's what Jesus did. That's what Dr. King did. And it's what people are doing even now in our own era, connecting the dots between where we are and the world we could go. And this, is why, this is why King had a dream, not a certainty. Right? It was a dream. Because in order to realize that dream, work has to be done. And so what will happen? What will we do with our imagination? I saw on Twitter this week um, a tweet from a prominent Christian, conservative Christian pastor. He's a uh, surrogate for the Trump campaign, for the Trump uh, administration a lot. He goes on a lot of uh, TV shows, conservative TV shows, and sort of gives his opinion on why everything's great in America right now. And here's what he said. The only cure for the racism in America is a changed heart that comes from trusting Jesus Christ. 
And essentially what I gather from that is what he's saying is, you know what, if we want to deal with racism in America, then it begins with believing in Jesus, with having some doctrinal belief about Jesus from praying a prayer and getting a WWJD bracelet. There's a whole generation who has no idea about WWJD bracelets. Um, and you know, if we do that, if we just all believe in Jesus the right way, everything's going to be fine. Racism will no longer be a problem. And he's expressing what I've heard from more than a few people online. If we, we just need to believe in Jesus and all of our problems will go away. If we just believed in Jesus in the right way, which is typically the way the person who's talking thinks we should believe in Jesus. If we just believe in Jesus, everything will go away. Racism will go away. Inequality will go away. World hunger will go away if we just believe in Jesus. And here's the problem. That is actually very, very false. We need more than a doctrinal system because people have believed in Jesus and used that belief to justify all sorts of terribleness in human history. People believed in Jesus and still committed genocide and stole land from indigenous peoples. People believed in Jesus and still established and supported the establishment of the Atlantic slave trade. People believed in Jesus and supported segregation and marked with the KKK and are still flying a Confederate flag, which is 0% about heritage and history and 110% about racism. People believed in Jesus and silenced women. People have believed in Jesus and supported war and indiscriminate killing through drone strikes. Some people who believe in Jesus think it's okay to separate families and keep kids in cages and turn away the immigrants and refugees our, our scriptures tell us to take in. Some people who believe in Jesus have aggressively tried to take away programs of social uplift while throwing tax breaks at people who don't need them. Some people who believe in Jesus support an administration who has declared an all-out war on the hard-won rights of marginalized communities. We need more than believing in Jesus. We need to believe Jesus. And there is a difference. Believing in Jesus, it's like talking about believing in the tooth fairy. You know the only time that becomes valid in, in our world is when somebody has lost a tooth and it's under a pillow. Believing in the tooth fairy does not shape your daily life. It doesn't shape the way we move into the world. It doesn't shape our ethic. It doesn't shape the way we treat our neighbor. Right? It, it is just sort of a belief that we attach up here that randomly becomes meaningful or valid you know, a couple times a year. We need to believe Jesus. And I think what I mean by that is to believe him enough to embody him. Right? We, need, we are invited to believe Jesus, to believe that this way of being in the world, that if we move into the world to love our neighbor, if we move into the world to love our enemy, if we move into the world to stand alongside those who have been oppressed and marginalized, if we use our voice to call for justice, if we participate in seeking justice in the world, the world will become better. We are not going to hell in a handbasket, but we do get to shape the future of our world. And when we believe Jesus, that Jesus was actually right about the way he called us to engage, about the way he called us to care for the least and the, and the ones who have been pushed aside by every other dominant system, Jesus was right that that is the better way to live, that caring about our neighbor, that loving our neighbor, that even extending that same love to our enemy is a better way to human and is a better way to live. And I, I tend to be an over-optimist sometimes, um, part of my personality, but right now I feel like this is possible in ways that I have not experienced the possibility in my lifetime, right? 
I, I see people showing up. I see people speaking up. I, I see people who are now realizing that we've got a lot of work to do and it's not going to happen on its own. We have got to roll our sleeves up and get our hands dirty and jump in and participate in the transformation of this world, the transformation of these systems that have been so deeply embedded with not only white Christian supremacy, but embedded with all sorts of other, all sorts of our biases and ways that we have chosen to live in an unhealthy way with each other. It feels like right now more people are waking up than ever before. It feels like it's possible. It does not feel like it's inevitable, which means it will take courage. And at some points it will take patience. It'll take our commitment. And ultimately it'll take faith. Not faith as a disembodied set of beliefs and thoughts that we keep over here, but faith as a conviction for how the world can be. Faith as a trust that when we embody faithful activity, that world begins to be born. Faith that has the imagination to dream up that better world. I know right now we're, we're in conversations about policing and we're in, in we're having conversations and my initial thought on some of those, was that, will that work? We're talking about transforming the world so that everybody has enough. I'm going, yeah, but we live in the capital. Is that going to work? We need imagination. Maybe the thing we haven't been bringing to the table all this time is the creative prophetic imagination to say, here's the world out there that's possible. Let's connect the dots. Another metaphor would be this. I, I think that creation is is pregnant with possibility, will we choose to midwife that into existence? Will we choose to use our voices, our energy, our resources, our bodies, and when it's asked of us, will we choose to use ourselves, everything that has been given to us in faithful activity to bring a new world into bear? So maybe from now when people say, do you have faith? I think, yeah, I have faith. I have faith in a new, better, more whole, holistic, just and generous world is waiting to be born if we are willing to roll up our sleeves and engage this good, hard, beautiful, challenging world.